0: Topo Chico out in the hall from one of the kids walking down. One of the contexts there, you know. Uh, Good to see you all. Good morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, If we haven't met or if you're uh, here for your first time, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders of our church, uh, privileged with the responsibility of preaching God's word most Sundays. Surely the case this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Ruth Uh, We've been in the book of Ruth since the beginning of February. We'll carry that on into next Sunday. We'll close out this series, and then we'll have a a two-week breakdown of Easter as we dive into uh, Palm Sunday, passage of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem uh, in one of the gospel accounts, and then the following week, we will celebrate the empty tomb as we do every Easter, as we do every Sunday, really and truly. The doctrine of the resurrection, we don't leave it in the China cabinet and pull it out for special occasions. Uh, We love the gospel. We proclaim it uh, each and every time we gather in spaces like these. The book of Ruth, one of the most endearing stories in all of the Bible. I'm sure many of you would agree with that. story covered in the fingerprints of the providential hand of a God who's always at work in bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment. Oftentimes in the most unexpected of ways, through the most ordinary of events, the most imperfect of people. The story, as I've said throughout this series, within the greater story of God's redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ. We just sang about that. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open up to Ruth chapter 4. We're in the final chapter here uh, of this great book of the Bible. We'll be in the first 12 verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles Use it during our time together. Take it home with you if you don't possess a Bible as the church's gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll get back into this incredible story together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Ruth, for the story of Ruth. This microcosm within the, the greater Meta-narrative of redemptive history, the big story, capital S. Thank you that it points us forward to the hope of Christ, our Redeemer. Pray that you would help us to see that in a unique way this morning as we sit with and camp out with these 12 verses. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in power as we sit with your inspired word in front of us? Would you awaken our minds for, from their slumber? Some of us may be still catching up from that hour we lost last weekend. Lord, would you stir our affections so that we wouldn't walk out of here theological bobbleheads who have more biblical knowledge and yet aren't moved and stirred in the deep recesses of our being by these things Would you change us from the inside out? Would you transform us through the steady diet of coming together on this thing we call the Lord's Day with its many means of grace? God, would you give me a feeling sense of the things I preach? In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we're at the point in this... Incredible story of redemption, where an an extensive recap of what brought us up to this point in the story would take up most of our time, and yet I want to give us something of a previously on Ruth. Uh, and so let me just briefly mention, by way of a reminder for many of us, that the story of Ruth, it's set against the, the backdrop of a dark time in Israel's hard and happy history, as you've heard for weeks now, in the days when the judges ruled time when there was yet no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, an ancient Near Eastern form of postmodernism. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. And we'll all live in accordance with our own truth. The story of Ruth beginning with a famine in the land, leading a woman by the name of Naomi and her family to leave for the land of Moab, one of the many surrounding lands of foreign gods, a land in which not only did her husband died, leaving Naomi a widow and her sons fatherless, as if that wasn't tragic enough, but a land in which her sons too died, leaving their two Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, grieving widows. Three funerals, three widowed women. This story's beginnings, much like the story of Job. And yet a story not completely absent of hope, as we've seen, as Naomi learned in the midst of her grief that the famine in Israel had finally come to an end prompting a return for her to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, right by her side. The return home for Naomi, nothing less than sorrowful, to be sure, having tasted numerous times over the bitterness of her own tears. God having become in her mind this frowning providence behind which there hides no smile. And yet, this is the story, as we've already begun to see, of a great reversal, a story of redemption born out of the ashes of ruin that's what God does. We're told that Ruth entered the fields of Bethlehem in chapter two in an effort to gather food for herself and her mother-in-law only to happen upon the part of the field belonging to a man by the name of Boaz, which of course is no statement of sheer chance on the author's part, as if to say as luck would have it, right? the providence of God on full display, Ruth having entered the fields of one of the only men able to redeem she and Naomi, a man concerned with mercy and justice, so that Boaz made sure that the cupboard of these two widowed women was full. Naomi's words of bitterness giving way to words of blessing in response to the kindness of the Lord expressed through the kindness of Boaz, a kindness that that extends beyond putting food on the table Boaz promising to Ruth at the threshing floor going back to last week chapter 3 that she will in the end be redeemed and with her redemption Naomi's redemption this is a two for one the implications of which we'll get into in greater detail as we dive into the final chapter of this incredible story in one sense with an expectation at some level of resolution right the two Uh, The transpiring events of chapter 3 making plain to us that there's not only one, but two men able to bring about the redemption of these two widowed women. In accordance with the law, at least two men able to provide for Naomi and Ruth. That's good news. And yet in another sense, the happily ever after, it's not in the bag just yet. Chapter 3, the last time we see Ruth and Naomi speaking in this story, the chapter closing with the outcome out of their hands. They must trust Boaz to bring resolution to their need for redemption. Not only that, we're left wondering who Naomi will, or who Ruth, I should say, will end up with. We're aware at this point in the story that that there remains a redeemer nearer than Boaz, with the right of first refusal, so to speak, in redeeming Naomi and Ruth. And yet, with a, a feeling sense at this point in the story that anyone other than Boaz couldn't possibly be right for Ruth. Right? It's that other guy in every Hallmark Christmas movie. The guy that's just a little bit less likable than the lead, that that for like three minutes you think, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen here? Because Hallmark doesn't give you more than three minutes to panic in those movies. That's where we are in the story. As you pick up in verse 1, we're told, Now Boaz had gone up to the, the gate, the city gate, and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men, Boaz did, of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. The city gate is where all the important meetings were held. Whether for the purpose of settling disputes among members of the community or conducting legal proceedings or business transactions Helps to explain Boaz's presence there, right? Having promised Ruth to settle the matter of her redemption. So Boaz sits down at the city gate and the redeemer of whom he had spoken just so happens to pass by. Just as Ruth had happened upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The phrase, and behold, verse 1, communicating something of the providence of this moment. As in, lo and behold, what do you know? Look who it is. And Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Friend being less a term of endearment, though it doesn't read that way in our English translations, as the two Hebrew words translated friend can also be translated so-and-so. Mr. So-and-so, the man left nameless in the story by both Boaz and the narrator, which many scholars believe to be Intentional a deliberate exclusion of the closer relative's name. The reason for which we'll we'll perhaps see as the story continues to unfold in its details, but in this moment, two present here, 10 elders of the city, the governing body of the town, whom Boaz gathers together with great intentionality. All the pieces are coming together, the perfect moment, the perfect situation for a resolution to the question of what will become of Naomi and Ruth. Remember, we've talked about this a few times throughout this series. A kinsman redeemer was a family member who was able to fulfill the stipulations of the Leverett Law, meaning that they were able to buy back land having been sold by an impoverished relative so that the land didn't leave the family. Perhaps even buying back an impoverished person who had sold himself or herself into slavery. At times too, and we'll see this In this particular case, stepping into a husbanding role and extending the family line in the case of a widowed woman whose deceased spouse had left her childless. Here, Boaz explains Naomi's need for redemption in that she's giving up what little land she has, likely in order to raise money to live on, which if sold to a kinsman redeemer, would keep the land in the family. The buyer adding the property to his own inheritance assuming that there are no children involved, which there aren't in this case. And Boaz says to the unnamed closer relative, well, you're first in line. What do you think? Does that sound like a prospect that might interest you? And the man said, I will redeem it. It's no surprise that that the offer is met with a quick yes and amen as it appears to be uh, little to no risk this opportunity to add to the man's real estate assets as well as enhance his reputation in bettering the situation of a widowed woman, one that he's only going to have to care for and provide for for a few years likely. She's up there in age in her golden years at this point. And yet Boaz knows something that the mystery man doesn't. Verse 5, then Boaz said, 'The, the day you buy the field, by the way, from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. I mean, talk about an oh, by the way statement, right? As Boaz declares that the property for purchase comes with a bride. And not just any bride, mind you, but a non-Israelite widowed woman from a land with which Israel has quite the strained past. The commitment far more than a real estate purchase. As the owner of that land would pledge himself to, to marrying Ruth and raising up a child with her to carry on the family name of the deceased. This is a big deal. Meaning that should Ruth conceive a child, the child would inherit the land in question And the kinsman redeemer would come out on the losing end of the transaction financially. Having invested in caring for Ruth and Naomi for years with nothing to show monetarily for the investment in the end. The numbers don't add up all of a sudden. So that we're told, verse 6, that the redeemer said, I can't, can't do it. I can't redeem The land for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, Boaz, for I cannot redeem it. Man says, I'm out. Just as quickly as he said, I'm in. Perhaps concerned with endangering his reputation, surely concerned with jeopardizing his own inheritance, we're we're told as much in the passage. In great irony, think about this, A man concerned with his own interests and legacy who ends up anonymous in the inscripturated pages of Redemptive History. In the words of one scholar, by trying to protect his future, Mr. So-and-so would remain forever nameless. This part of the story inviting us to to wrestle ourselves with our with our own concerns for comfort, for security, for self-preservation to consider the blessing that we may be missing in choosing to live with only our own self-interest in mind. we told that the unnamed man gives up his right of redemption, opening the door for Boaz to exercise that right himself. And Boaz is not only able, but willing, in an act of self-giving love, to be a part of this story of ruin to redemption. I'm in, Boaz says. Verse 7, the story goes on. Now, this was custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. As was the custom of the day, the, the unmanned... Name removes his shoe in the presence of the governing body of the ten elders and all the others gathered at the city gate. Everyone's in on this, they're seeing it. And he gives his sandal to Boaz, relinquishing his right of redemption. And that's the last we hear of Mr. So and so. Like Orpah, chapter one, never to be heard of, heard from again. Boaz, on the other hand, verse nine, said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz knows that that his decision to act as a kinsman redeemer in this situation is not one that promises a return on investment in the eyes of the world. And yet, and we've seen it before in this story, the eyes of the world are not Boaz's concern. But rather acting in accordance with that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. And not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Boaz trusting that what God thinks is what matters most, not what makes the most sense according to the wisdom of the world. And so Boaz offers up this speech, just like the the unnamed relative in the presence of the governing body of the ten elders and all the others gathered at the city gate, clarifying his intention to redeem Elimelech's property that the land might remain in the family. As well as his intention to marry Ruth and raise up a child with her to carry on the family name of the deceased. Declaring at both the beginning and the end of his speech, you are witnesses this day. A lot of us men, myself included, could probably learn from the assertiveness and intentionality of Boaz in this moment. Like Ruth on the journey with Naomi to Bethlehem. No turning back. You've all seen it, your witnesses this day, regardless of what it might cost me, Boaz says. I'm in. Then all the people, love how this passage comes to a close. All the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman, Ruth. Here you have the townspeople and the elders pronouncing a benediction, a threefold word of blessing at the city gate. The first, a prayer of blessing over Ruth that the Lord might make Ruth the Moabite like Rachel and Leah, the two wives of Jacob who together built the house of Israel up, the two women bearing 12 sons from whom God would establish the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, a prayer of blessing that that Ruth would have a a significant matriarchal role in the story of God's people, a prayer that, that the Lord would surely answer his right, Ruth's name is now and forever etched into the pages of redemptive history. The second, a prayer of blessing over Boaz, that he might walk in righteousness all of his days and have a renowned reputation in Bethlehem Ephrathah. A prayer that the Lord, too, would surely answer, as Boaz has been understood by Many Christians and scholars throughout the years to be one of the great foreshadowings of Christ in the Old Testament. And speaking of Christ, the third prayer at the city gate, one of blessing over Boaz's entire house because of the offspring the Lord would give to he and Ruth. That their house might be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. A moment in that hard and happy history of Israel uh, when, when Leveret marriage went really badly. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 38. That's a different sermon for a different day. And yet, in that story, God brought redemptive good out of the ashes of scandalous ruin including the many descendants having come from the house of Perez, including Boaz himself and so many surrounding him in this moment at the city gate. In other words, a prayer of blessing that the offspring of Boaz and Ruth would be plentiful and prominent in the unfolding story of God's people. A prayer that the Lord too would surely answer, though Without scandal on the part of Ruth and Boaz, as unlike Tamar, Ruth's determination was matched by her integrity. A couple whose family line would consist not only of kings like David and Solomon, but the king of kings, the greater David. Right? We, we may be inclined to, to see this morning's passage as less than romantic, as it gives us a window into the legal process of kinsmen redeeming. It's not very glamorous in a sense. And yet it shows us the depth and beauty of Naomi and Ruth's redemption, and with that points us to the greater redemption that's yours and mine in Jesus Christ. The one who would someday pay the ultimate price, the greatest act of redemption the world has ever known. There must be more than a willingness to redeem. There too must be an ability to redeem. Boaz was willing and able in that he had the desire to redeem Ruth and the means. So is the case with Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. The one and only mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. As the old hymn goes... Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior, what a kinsman redeemer. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior, what a kinsman redeemer. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a savior, what a kinsman redeemer. He was lifted up to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior, what a kinsman redeemer. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew, this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a savior, what a kinsman redeemer. In the words of one writer, when we look at Boaz, we see many godly traits to imitate. But when we look through Boaz, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our greatest of kinsmen redeemers. Who saw the ashes of our greater ruin, greater than the ruin of Naomi and Ruth in this story, and saw our need for greater redemption. He was able to pay the price of that redemption, and unlike the unnamed Mr. So-and-so, he was willing. And aren't, aren't you happy that he was both? That Jesus came to rescue lost sinners like you and me into a forever family, making us his bride, at the cost not of perishable things such as silver or gold or bundles of barley, but his precious blood, 1 Peter 1. And so I say let's worship this Jesus, our greatest of kinsmen redeemers. We get to do that in a couple different ways as we do every Sunday coming out of our time in the scriptures with our collective song. Let's worship him. Let's sing of his glory his goodness his grace let's cry out with our voices as the guitar begins to play thank you jesus that you weren't just able but you were willing thank you for the redemption the greater redemption that you've that you've given me that you've rescued me out of a hopeless, the most dire of situations, and brought me into your forever family as your bride, part of the church. You, the bridegroom, the greater Boaz. We also have an opportunity to worship through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to participate in the receiving of the bread and the cup, but rather that your next step would be one of repentance, of turning from your sins and turning to Jesus and trust and faith and saying, you're my only hope for redemption, for rescue, for forgiveness, falling at his feet as a worthy Lord and sufficient Savior this morning. And if you are a Christian, as many of you know, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion stations on either side of the stage here. There's a gluten-free table back in the corner there. As we prepare to continue to worship collectively this morning, I want to give just a couple minutes... As James comes back up, before we jump into the first lyrics of this next song, just to sit with the so what of our time in God's word this morning. What does he have for you? Is there, is there an exhortation, a call to relinquish your grip on self-preservation and comfort and securities in ways that are not in accordance with the kingdom, like Mr. So-and-so? To say, I don't want to gain the world and lose my soul, lose my legacy. I want kingdom legacy. I want Jesus legacy for me and my family. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C R O S S P O I N T E P T C dot